like to have you turn to Amos chapter 5, if you will. <clears throat> Amos chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Uh, actually, we're going to go down through verse 15. 7, seven 8, and 9 I'm going to read right now, and then we're going to get into the rest of it here in just a moment. The theme of the book of Amos is the righteousness of God in the midst of the judgment that has to come upon the northern kingdom of Israel for its idolatry, for its rebellion against God, for its disobedience to God. From the very onset of that particular kingdom, they were far from God. And you know, if you begin far from God and you're going to establish your own religion, you're, you're going to establish your own way of doing things, you're going to get further from God, further from the truth, further from the one that loves you with an everlasting love. And that was Israel. God loved them with an everlasting love. He told them all the time. And yet they continued on separate themselves from the things of God. So as we got into chapter 5, we began to see how God was now very, making very clearly certain specifics as to how he was going to uh, judge them. In this particular case, he's judging the unjust. The children of Israel treated each other terribly. It was like uh, having a uh, caste system where there was the rich and the strong and the elite and, you know, just dividing the people from the rich and the poor. And uh, they took advantage of, of the poor, both in, in, their, in their poverty, but also in their, in their need for justice. God made it very clear in the law that everyone was to have the same right for that, for that justice to, to be theirs, no matter whether you were rich or poor. But they changed that. We see how countries do that today. Under the guise of some kind of democracy, it it's usually uh, ends up being socialism and, and uh, treachery from the, from the government itself. So as we get into verse 7 now, he aims his, his words to these unjust people. He says, you, turn, you who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth, Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong so that the spoils shall come against the fortress. And so the virgin of Israel had fallen so low. That is what he has called Israel in verse 2 of this chapter. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. And so the virgin of Israel had fallen so low as far as her own will was concerned that she could never rise again in and of herself. Her leaders were never going to be able to raise her up for they were far from the Lord themselves. But the Lord still pleaded with her, crying out to reach the ears of anyone who would take heed, Seek ye me, and you shall live. Seek me and you shall live. There was no one who could deliver Israel except for the one whom she had deserted, whom she had forsaken. Her chosen places of worship, as we mentioned last time, Bethel and Beersheba and Gilgal, not, not to mention Dan, 
up in the north became proofs that man designed sacredness and man chosen worship centers would never prevent falls into captivity. They did prove to be strongholds for demons, though. Bethel would become Beth Aven, which means house of, no house of nothing or house of vanity, house of emptiness. And when anything is empty of, of, of that which was good before, it's usually the demons that will go in and, and, and enter in. They'll go in and occupy. Can you imagine that? If you, if you look at the picture of their own hearts, where their hearts were full of vanity and emptiness, when the Spirit of God is no longer focused upon, then the enemy attacks. And so Israel was strongly urged to seek the Lord and live, lest, lest as it says, he break out like fire in the house of, of, of uh, Joseph, uh, which was Ephraim, and, and devour it, uh, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Speaking again of the northern kingdom. But this warning went unheeded, and so in the matter of just a few years, the judgment was carried out, and the northern kingdom of Israel would be expelled from the land, never to be gathered again until, never to be gathered again until the day of Israel's coming glory. Because what we must remember is that God had made a covenant with Israel. God had made a unilateral, unilateral covenant with Israel that he kept for both sides. They couldn't have kept it any other way. It wouldn't be considered any other way except for the very fact that God had promised them that he would be with them. And even in spite of their fall, and I mean, this is what we read in the book of Deuteronomy, and, and we've quoted it many times in, 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 in our last few books that we studied, Hosea and Joel, and even here in Amos. Going all the way back to the law, where, where it tells them in the law, listen, if you do good, if you obey the law, if you obey me and, and follow after me and keep my commandments, all these goods, all these blessings will be yours. But if you don't do them, then what's going to happen? Only the curses will come. And time and again, we see then the issue, the issue of the choice that people make. Because what they had chosen to do, apart from God's will, would resonate for thousands of years. Though for many years previous to this, they were encouraged to choose rightly. And I thought about that today, how, how they were encouraged to choose, to choose right. To choose God always. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Talking about Deuteronomy, let's go there. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. And listen again. I know that I, I, I've, I've quoted, uh, this is not the only you know, uh, passage. I've quoted many other passages that sound very similar. Because they're all throughout this book of Deuteronomy. It's the recounting of the law of God. It says, see, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. Notice what God puts out before them. <clears throat> I set thee before thee this day life and good, death and evil in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his, sta his statutes and his judgments that thou mayest live and multiply. There's a blessing. You get to live and you get to multiply. You multiply your family, you multiply your, your possessions, you multiply the things that you have because God is blessing you. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, 
I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. It's like this big hint he's saying. I put these things out before you, death, life, this and that. Hey, choose life. That's the answer. You want to pass the test? Choose life. I've got it from good sources. Choose life. That both thou and thy seed may live. That thou mayest love the Lord thy God. And that thou mayest obey his voice. And that thou mayest cleave unto him. That word cleave means, I mean, to cling on to. To the God who created you. To the God who knew you before you were born. Who knew you before you even were in your mother's womb. For he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Choose life. There really isn't any other choice. Because if you don't choose life, guess what you choose? You choose death. It doesn't get thrust upon you. You're making a choice. Toward the end of Joshua's life, Joshua gathered the children of Israel together. And he also gave them something to choose. We're told in Joshua 24, verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord. This is what he's telling his people. He's getting ready to die. And Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, worship the Lord, reverence the Lord, respect the Lord. Kiss toward the Lord, live for the Lord. Lift him up high above all things. Worship him. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. Why would, we, why would he say that if there weren't some people that were messing around with idols and in Egypt and he says put them aside put them away in, in other words get rid of them don't keep them for a rainy day get rid of them destroy them and serve ye the Lord and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord I have always been fascinated by that statement But it obviously happens to be a, a, a sentiment that people have. They don't reflect it that way to us, but I mean, a lot of times people don't want to worship the Lord. They think it's an evil thing for them because they, they have all of their uh, things turned around in their head, all, all of their understanding about things. Everything's turned upside down, topsy-turvy. Remember, what's good is bad, and what's bad is good. And people are calling things that are good bad, and things that are bad good today. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve then. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice you have to make. Choose life. Choose to serve the Lord. Getting back to the theme of this chapter, the Lord's pronouncement of judgment on the unjust of Israel. 
It is in this next section of chapter 5 that God issues this strong indictment against the unjust in Israel by using very descriptive and quite poetic language in the Hebrew, but more than likely, all of this comes through the experience of, of the shepherd Amos. who spent countless nights contemplating the stars and their courses, that he mentions the stars by name. In fact, the constellations. He was quite aware of the kinds of vegetation that you couldn't really appreciate and enjoy because it was poisonous or bitter. And he knew all about these things, but God uses them. As Amos is inspired by the Lord, he says, you who turn judgment to wormwood, wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, the Pleiades and, and, and Orion. Anybody ever seen the, the, the seven stars and Orion? In the, Orion is in the, it's in the winter sky. It's not in the summer sky. You won't see it for a few months. But as the fall starts to turn, Orion starts to come up out of the southern sky. He saw these things. He says, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. The Lord was charging the unjust with turning justice into a poisonous curse because the word, worm, the word wormwood in the, in the Hebrew is the la'ana associated with hemlock. Now we all should know that hemlock is a poisonous, uh, poisonous plant. But it is a word that describes ex extreme bitterness especially bitterness for the honest and the righteous within their society who receive very little fairness, if any at all. For them, justice had become a, a casting of righteousness to the ground. That's pretty much what it means there in verse 7. Leave off righteousness in the earth means to cast righteousness to the ground. And when judges are as unrighteous as the lawless of society, there can only be bitter outcomes for the decent and law-abiding citizens. We would like to believe that even in our own nation, we have good, competent judges, fair judges. But sadly, this, you know, with, with this crazy, crazy political season that we are in, it's hard to know what judges are fair and which ones are not. There are some judges that have just pulled the, the blindfold right off of uh, Lady, whatever her name is, Lady Justice. <laughs> Pull the blindfold right off. Justice is supposed to be blind, hearing all the facts. Now everything is political, or at least many things are. That becomes bitter. Justice that is being perverted daily in our own country by political partisan judges reminds us of the standard of, judge, of, of justice that the Lord requires of governments toward their own people. I've said this time and time again, going through these minor prophets, God is going to judge the nations. And this is one of the very points that he's going to judge, is how they have treated their own people, whether justly or not. Now, we know that societally, justice is supposed to be as described in verse 24 of this same chapter. Go down to Amos 5.24. Because even here, the Lord says, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. That's the way justice is supposed to be. <coughs> Excuse me. 
In other words, justice is supposed to provide cleansing and refreshment to society. So much has changed in the area of jurisprudence in our nation today that no longer are, are, are people, you know, now, now we, we, we take months, if not years, going through all kinds of other courts, you know. One, one trial, somebody's found guilty, but then he gets to appeal. So appellate courts are working overtime. And then justice never comes. And we don't even want to get into the prison system at this point because even there, there seems to be some trouble going on. But justice itself is supposed to provide cleansing and refreshment to society. But instead, the apostate leaders of Israel had turned a refreshing and cleansing river into a bitter, poisonous brook. Go back now to Amos chapter, or not go back, but go forward to Amos chapter 6 for just one verse. Verse 12. Shall horses run upon the rock where one plow there with oxen? For you have turned judgment into gall. The word gall in the Hebrew is roshe. Roshe. It is connected to the word rosh, which is head or beginning. But it is Rosh and the, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. By the way, hemlock, the, the Hebrew word is the same as wormwood, la'ana. So it's poison. It's poisonous. They've turned judgment into gall. Gall can be translated as a poisonous plant similar to wormwood and, and hemlock but can also describe the poison found in animals because the same word is used for venom. And primarily it is serpentine type animals that have venom. Hence the pillars of justice and righteousness that were designed and given by God to hold up and support society were in effect thrown to the ground. So we're still in verse 7 here. And one evidence of this is the increase in lawsuits. The increase in lawsuits. You don't have to go any further than Hosea chapter 10, verse 4, to substantiate that claim. One more modern translation actually uses the term lawsuits. But in Hosea chapter 10, verse 4, it says, They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Judgment springeth up as hemlock. Judgment springs forth as, as, as wormwood, as, as poison. You think of all these incessant lawsuits. You know, one person says this, the other person says that, and they're supposed to be both be under, you know, sworn to tell the truth. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they used to say, so help me God. Some places they still do. But it doesn't keep them from lying. Swearing falsely and making a covenant. And thus judgment springs up like poison as they're plowing the fields. In Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 13, it gives us a little better or clearer picture, if you will, of this issue of wormwood and gall. It says in verse 13, And the Lord saith, Because they have forsaken my law, which I said before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Baalim, or Baalim, or Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. 
It becomes their judgment. It becomes the judgment of God to give them that. Simply for not obeying his voice or walking in his truth. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 17 and 18. It says, and you have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. You see, instead of running off to their religious meetings to worship idols in their high places or in their so-called places of worship. The people should have stayed home and, and seen to it that their leaders weren't poisoning the, the river of justice and knocking down the pillars of justice and righteousness. The leaders were destroying the people because they were not maintaining justice and righteousness among them. Believers in Jesus Christ, and listen carefully to this because this applies to us, but G believers in Jesus Christ are to be the salt of the earth. And salt prevents corruption. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the light of the world. And if there were more light, there would be certainly less darkness, right? The more light, there'd be less darkness. This is the reason why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. So he says, you're the salt of the earth. You are the salt that prevents corruption. Then he says, but you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. If God has put us here on this earth, which is really now in darkness and will probably intensify in darkness as we see the day of, of the Antichrist approaching. We're not looking for that day, by the way, but that day's coming. Jesus said it was coming. We know that Jesus is coming and we need to be ready for the return of Jesus. But concurrently, the day of, of Antichrist is coming too, which is making this world darker and darker. The fact of the matter is though, in any darkness, the long as there's light, light will dispel the darkness. And Jesus said this as well. So we have a responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ. A responsibility to be salt. With knowing the truth of the word of God, with standing upon the truth of the word of God, with proclaiming the truth of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're giving people the opportunity to prevent corruption in their lives. Somebody told us the gospel. Somebody shared the love of Christ with us so that we today are thankful, daily thankful that we today have entrance into the kingdom of God, not by our works, not by our might or power, not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. God has saved us. In spite of us, he has saved us. We are called then to be that salt. We're called to let the light of the glory of Jesus Christ shine. 
because the good works that we do, and he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. The good works that we are to do, as it is very carefully given to us in the Gospel of John, is to, to, to know Jesus Christ. It is to believe in Christ. It is to live for Christ. Glorifying our Father which is in heaven. So with whom then will the ungodly and the unjust have to deal? Will who, with whom will the ungodly and the unjust have to deal? Well, look at Amos, going back to Amos verse five, um, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, the Pleiades in, in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. Who will they have to deal with? They will have to deal with the authority of the authorities, the judge of all judges, the king of all kings, and the Lord over all lords. That's who they're going to have to deal with. He is the God of creation, the one who can hurl stars into space, bind them into constellations, like the ones that Amos mentioned, and bend them to his own will. He is the one to seek. This is why he says there in verse 8, seek him. Seek him. Because he alone can chase the dark shadow of death away and he can flood the blackness of the tomb with his radiant light. He can turn out the sun if he wanted to and call the sea to engulf the whole earth. The prophet Amos was strongly urging the, the Israelites to seek God, to seek Him. Not some senseless golden calf. And not some experience. I, I, I believe that the mention of, of Gilead and, uh, I'm sorry, Gilgal and uh, Bethel and Beersheba are, are, are here in this, in this particular book are there to remind us even as believers in Jesus Christ today that it isn't going uh, following after every wind of doctrine going to one place here or one place there going to Toronto or going to uh, some place in Florida I forgot the name of it but anyway going to these places you know because all of a sudden there's a move of the Holy Spirit there and everybody goes there and eventually, you know, things are happening and most of it is experiential. And before you know it, it's all gone. And then they go home and, you know, then it all of a sudden becomes this relic. Set it in some spiritual museum then. Did God do some work in it? Probably did with some people. But that's the problem with the, with, with the northern kingdom of Israel. Man, they went all over the place. But more than anything, they desecrated the places that were at time, at one time important to Joshua, uh, to, to Abraham, and, and, and to uh, Jacob. Those three places. Do you think they were worshiping the God of Israel there? No. They were only worshiping their fancy. They were only worshiping the experience. Folks, we need to wake up. Where we are right now is where God is. Right here and right now. And we have the opportunity, each and every one of us individually, to choose to worship Him, to praise Him, to listen to Him, follow Him, and serve Him. Each and every one of us in this place. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care about any of these empty chairs. I only care about the ones that are occupied because you're here. You're the church of Jesus Christ. You're the church. What are we going to do as believers? So Amos strongly urges the Israelites to seek him, not some, some golden calf, 
Oh, and by the way, since they had nearly forgotten who he was, the prophet reminded them, oh, by the way, the Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. Yahweh or Jehovah or Hashem, the name. That's his name. And this same God will be the one who flings ruin in the face of the strong and will rain destruction upon the fortress of the mighty. That's the rest of verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 9. That strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. Again, listen, he is the one who flings ruin in the face of the strong and will rain destruction upon the forces or the fortress of the mighty. In the light of God's holiness along with the terms of his holy covenant, the people should have been on their faces calling out to God in repentance and calling out for his mercy. Instead of that, they chose to stay complacently comfortable in their luxury and in their sins. Many years before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, the psalmist King David had pictured the enemies of God sitting in a conclave and, and audaciously ruling the, uh, the Lord out of his own universe. He saw this prophetically. Just as the socialists, communists, and humanists seek to do today. Rule the Lord out of his own universe. Kick him out of all these institutions. They did it in, they did it in the Soviet Union. They're trying to do it here. Every day they're trying to do it. But David, some, David added something to that scenario. Turn to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Because he says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Stop. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. They obviously don't know the Lord, do they? They obviously don't know who he is or what he is or how powerful he is or how awesome he is and how righteous he is and how just he is and how mighty he is. And not only against the Lord, but against his anointed. That's the Messiah. Against Jesus. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They're ready to take on God. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the Antichrist that's coming. Be very prominent for seven years. Not just three and a half or half of three and a half. Wherever anybody thinks that the rapture might happen, has to happen before all of that. What does God do? This is what David adds. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And again, when David was facing Saul's assassins, and yes, Saul sent assassins to kill David, this is what he writes in Psalm 59, verses 6 through 8. They return at, ev at evening, they, they make a noise like a dog and go around about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for who say, for who say they doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Thou shall have all the heathen in derision. In both cases, the term derision means to laugh them to scorn, to mock them, actually to speak unintelligibly as stammering, even to the point of making fun of them. It's kind of an interesting thought. So what God does with those who say, we're against you, we're going to 
rule you out of this universe. So as in the case of Israel during the time of Amos the prophet, the unjust oppressors thought themselves to be strong, but their self-confidence would bring a forbiddingly grim smile to the Lord's lips. Wow. I want you to remember something. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. He said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Notice what he says. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Kind of counters the attitude of the Israelites in the time of, of Amos, whose only concerns were their own wealth and their own complacency, their own comfort. In the next section of our text, in chapter 5, the, the Lord himself will spell out five charges against all of the unjust. It begins in verse 10 where it says, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, you, uh, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor and the gate from their right. And therefore the prudent shall, shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. The first charge against the unjust was that they hated honest judges and witnesses. That's verse 10. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. In other words, they oppressed any person who sought to uphold the truth within society and within the courts of the nation. This would include anyone who opposed them or their way of thinking and anyone who refused to take bribes. Not so much about the bribes so much, but I was just thinking about how people are so opposed to those who are opposed to their way of thinking. And they let you know it. That goes on today. The second charge in verse 11 concerned their abuse and theft from the poor in order to build larger mansions and vineyards for themselves. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor and you take from him burdens of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone that you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards but you shall not drink wine of them. And hence the, the Lord forewarned the unjust that their mansions and their farms would be destroyed. And they would never wince from their vineyards. They would never drink from their vineyards. My apologies. They would never drink from their vineyards. I don't know where that word came from. I think it was just typing so fast and threw an extra word in there. It doesn't even make sense. That was the only one I saw. The third charge had to do with their oppression of the righteous and honest of society, along with their taking bribes in exchange of favors. Verse 12, for I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, 
They take a bribe. And then the last part of verse 12 reveals the fourth charge. The unjust were charged with depriving the poor of justice within the courts, because it says, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. You're, you're too poor to have good justice done for you, so we're turning you away. As for the fifth charge, verse 13, the unjust silence the wise of the nation. It says, therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. When those who are wise attempted to bring true justice and righteousness to the court system and society as a whole, the unjust stood against them. And when a righteous or honest person spoke up against injustice, those who were dishonest turned viciously, ferociously against the individual. As some today, threats are made insisting on silence. The times are so evil as it was in those days that this sort of injustice, injustice runs rampant through a throughout the nation. Threats made insisting on silence. In our Constitution, we have a, a, the First Amendment that gives us the right of free speech. But most importantly, it gives us the right to worship as we do. And Yet, how often do we see people who have misinterpreted the law, and certainly on purpose, to destroy the very foundation of this nation that was founded with that as one of its major principles, to be allowed to worship our God in the way that we do, without any interference from the government, but today, people have turned the Constitution on its head. They haven't changed it, but they certainly don't trust it or believe in it any longer. And if they could, they'd change it. To what? To whatever they're doing in Venezuela or whatever they're doing in all of these other countries? It's affecting us as a nation. We're more divided today as a nation than we've ever been. And it's all division, division by lies. Division, division by lies that say if you don't agree with a certain side, a certain political position, then you're called one of many things. Racist, bigot, homophobic, all kinds of other things. So, just going through our teaching in the book of Amos brings us to look at things side by side. The things that are happening today were happening in a different way, but still happening thousands of years ago. But I believe in the next phrase that the Lord made a second plea to the unjust. He made a second plea to the unjust, a plea that reveals how deeply God loves his people, even the most evil and corrupt within society. When he says in verses 14 and 15 of our text, seek good and not evil, once again, that's a plea. Turn back to me. Seek good and not evil that you may live. What will, that what will that require but a, but a choice? Seek good. Choose to seek good and not evil. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. And then he intensifies the language and he says, hate the evil and love the good. And establish judgment in the gate. In the very place where judgment is supposed to take place, establish true judgment. True justice. 
Not what is being done today under the guise of social justice. That's a deception. Establish true justice that is right and proper and fair and righteous. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. God's prophet cried out, see good, not evil. Anyone who sought good and not evil could be assured that the Lord would give him two wonderful things. Two wonderful things. Life and the very presence of God himself. Do you know that because you chose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then realize that God brought you to that place in your life that he chose you, how God works all of that is a blessing. But in any event, when you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you received life, everlasting life, and the very presence of God himself every day, not only around you, but in you, in you. Not only upon you and with you, but in you. Is is that not a blessing? Is it not a blessing to know that everywhere you go, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, God said, I'll be with you and I'll never leave you? So in spite of our ups and our downs, our good and our bad, our whatever, I mean, he's going to be there. It would always be good to acknowledge that. Thank you, Lord, for being with me in this time of struggle, this time of trial, in this time of worry, in this, you know, Lord, I... I'm not going to have to worry about anybody that says, oh, brother, you should have more faith. Shut up. I've got faith. So I know one thing. God's not leaving me. God didn't leave me. God has not left me. God has not left you. We need to be careful. You know, there's only one Holy Spirit. Not a hundred Holy Spirits. But at the same time, we need to be humble when we are struggling, that people want to lift you up and encourage you. But even in that, in that be discerning. People mean well. But nonetheless, you know, I, re- I, received, I received words from, from those that come sincerely, you know. I mean, I understand what they're saying. And I'm struggling, when I've, and I've been struggling, you know, and I thank you for your prayers, but because it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to go through certain trials when, you know, people are trying, you know, say, oh, you need to do this and that. And I need to do one thing. I need to do what God tells me. I need to do what God is telling me to do. And if you confirm it, praise the Lord. And if you don't confirm it, it's okay. I'll pray for you. So he was once again offering any citizen of the northern kingdom the wonderful opportunity to escape the coming judgment. And of course, doing good would involve seeking the Lord, living righteously and obeying God's holy commandments. But judgment was coming. That was inevitable from the very first couple of chapters of the book of Amos. Judgment was coming. It's not pulling back. It is coming. So he keeps giving them opportunity to repent. He wanted to save a remnant of faithful believers from the disastrous destruction that was inevitable. I'm going to leave you guys with a couple of passages, one in Isaiah chapter 1 and one in Romans chapter 12. So listen carefully to this to bring it together with where where we've been throughout this study tonight. Isaiah 1, verse 16. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings. 
from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Who's speaking? God speaking. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It brings to mind the fact that we need to choose life because God has made that available. Choose life. Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verses 9 through 13 speaks of the attitude of our hearts as believers in Jesus Christ. But there is a very significant sound that is so similar to what we've read in Amos and in Isaiah. Paul said, let love be without dissimulation. The simple translation for dissimulation is hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't love with a mask on. Take the masks off. Abhor that which is evil. In other words, with every bit of godly hatred, hate evil. Cleave to that which is good. Cling strongly to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. What were the rich Israelites doing to the poor Israelites? But enslaving them, keeping them from true justice, taking of their goods so that they could have more. In honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring others above yourselves. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. These are the things that if Israel had done them from the beginning, because they had loved their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. God would have blessed them. And he still blesses today when we do that. The whole idea of being humble before God is seen in two people. David and many of the good kings of Israel, but David primarily, and Jesus. For both of them did not ride on some stallion, some mighty, mighty horse. They, they rode on the foal of a donkey. They express the very fact that no one is greater than God. God alone is above all things. God alone is above all of us, but he loves us with an everlasting love. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 
The children of Israel were being judged because they not only had worshipped idols, had disobeyed God, rebelled against God, rebelled against his holy city, rebelled against everything about him, but God is coming down on them here because they treated and mistreated their very brothers. We have to be, be mindful of those things as believers. The attitude of our hearts has to be the attitude of what Christ taught us from himself, through his disciples, through his apostles. It should be seen in every one of us.